it's a well-known metaphor to describe life as a journey, right? You see it in books, you see it in movies. Sometimes these stories are literally journeys where you see your character have to go through from point A to point B, and there's a lot of things that meet them, and they transform on the way. And so it's been very cliche for Christianity to say that we are on a journey with God. We started off like the Israelites, in Egypt as slaves, as part of this system of work and accomplish and build wonderful things for the emperor in Egypt. And then he comes, God comes and sets us on a journey in which Israel goes through the wilderness and finally makes it to the promised land and then builds a temple and makes a kingdom and a home there. God is taking us on similar journeys. From the Egypt where we were born, he's taking us through trials, through dry seasons, through crazy exotic wilderness places, and finally going to get us home to the promised land where we will have our part in the kingdom of God. This is the metaphor, journey. Now, it's very fitting because every single human being, whether they're Christians or not, are on a journey. They have chosen a road because as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The human heart is restless until it learns to rest in God. Therefore, every human feels this restlessness and feels this need to get on the road, to move, to find home, to find the place of rest. So some choose road number one. It's flat, it's level, and it's easy. You actually don't have to do much to get on this road. You don't need a lot of energy for it because so, it sort of has this perfect, slight, decline, where if you just rock back enough, you will just coast. But the Proverbs also warned that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It doesn't take much to let gravity take you. But then there's another road. There's a road that goes the other direction, and it begins to climb up a mountain. And many people have looked at it and said, that looks too hard. I'm going to stay in the valley where it's easy. Some have even tried to begin climbing the mountain, but the very first steps, they began to get blisters in their feet. They began to feel the muscles ache. They felt the chest burn as they didn't get enough oxygen. And somewhere up the little beginning part of the mountain, they say, this is too hard. If the first hundred feet kill me, what are the next thousand going to do to me? And so they go back down to the easy road. But then there are some who are willing to push and to keep on going up the mountain. And their hearts, their restless hearts, drive them because they believe that there is no other rest than what awaits me at the top. And for Christians, this is, for Jews in the Old Testament, that was Jerusalem. They were traveling up to their city to worship their God. For us, it's the new Jerusalem, as Revelation reveals. We are traveling to our home to be with our God and to worship him. So these are the Psalms of Ascent. We're restless until we find our rest in God. So um, the Jews, uh, if you guys will now go to Psalm 120. 
you will notice that the very first one of these, there's a little title on it. Now, just to be super clear, some Bibles, the editors, the people who print it, decide to put little helpful titles so you know what the passage of Scripture is about. For example, in my Bible, Psalm 120 has a title over it, and it says, Deliver Me, O Lord. That came from a human. But then there's a title that's built into the Psalms that is considered part of Scripture. And it says, A Song of Ascents. Sometimes it will say, Of David, or Of the Sons of Korah, or A Song to be Sung to the Tune of the Lilies of the Field, or whatever. There will be titles. Those come from Scripture itself, okay? So the first part of this psalm actually is a song of ascents. Now, Psalm 121 is going to say the same thing, a song of ascents. Psalm 122. And on all the way to Psalm 134, these are the 15 songs of ascent. Now again, the Jews, we believe, sang these on their way up the mountain. How great is that? When Brittany and I take the kids to Arizona, to Phoenix, to see their grandparents, it can be a long drive for toddlers, and even longer for parents of toddlers. <laughs> so it's very helpful to have one of two options. One, to leave late at night so that they sleep, or two, in case that fails, because one of our kids just refuses to sleep often, having a movie for them so that they can be appeased for at least a fifth of the trip and then another movie until they fall asleep. We all understand that even on a journey, as you're seeking that place of rest, you're restless on the journey. And we need something to like hold us together. And I can imagine that if we right now, I took all of you guys up the trail back here to Strawberry Peak, there would be, oh, a great deal of complaining on the way. How do you keep a group of people happy on a long journey without iPads, without stereo systems, without Game Boys? That's going back to my day. <laughs> How do you keep them happy? Well, they would sing these 15 familiar songs together. That would not only keep everyone happy, but it would prepare the heart for what is coming, and it would bond the travelers as a community. There's 15 of them, right? This is significant. It is not an accident that there's 15. Um, in the temple, where they're going, there are 15 steps leading up to the temple. And some scholars believe that the priests would actually line up on the 15 steps and sing each of the 15 psalms of ascent. So in one way, they are metaphorically climbing those stairs as they climb the mountain by singing each of the psalms. They are getting their hearts to the temple. There's 15 for another reason. You guys are very familiar with what's called the Aaronic Blessing. It's in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. We sing this every single Sunday at the end of our service. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Hebrew, that blessing is exactly 15 words long. Isn't that cool? You're like, okay, coincidence. Well, no, because... If you exclude the parts about God's face shining upon you and lifting up his countenance upon you, if you exclude those two lines about his face, there are four lines. And each of them, the four deal with blessing, they deal with peace, they deal with grace, and they deal with keeping us, right? The Lord bless you, keep you, give you grace, and give you peace. Those four lines are appear in 12 of these 15 psalms. At least one of those lines. Let's look at a couple just so I can give you an example. Tonight's Psalm 120, if you look at verse 7, he says, I am for peace. Okay? 121 verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel. Verse 5. Yahweh is your keeper. Verse 7. Yahweh will keep you. He will keep your life. Verse 8, Yahweh will keep your going and your coming out. That one seems like it really likes the Lord keep you, right? Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace, this is now verse 7, peace be within your walls. Verse 8, for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. Psalm 123, verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God till he has grace upon us. Now, my translation does say mercy, and I believe most of yours says mercy, but the word is actually the same as grace here in the Hebrew. So I'm just going to read grace. Verse 3, have grace upon us, O Yahweh, have grace upon us. Psalm 125, verse 5, at the very end, peace be upon Israel. Look at Psalm 128, verses 5 and 6. 128, verses 5 and 6. Yahweh bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So there's two of them, bless and peace. And so on it goes. You see that there's this very obvious presence of the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord be gracious to you, and the Lord give you peace. Those four parts of the ironic blessing from Numbers chapter 6 are throughout these 15 psalms because that blessing has 15 words. So when the psalms are put together, it seems that part of what they wanted was that there'd be a collection of 15 to remind them of those 15 words so that as they're going to Jerusalem, they know what's coming. When they come to Jerusalem, what would the priest say to them? They'd say, yay, you're here. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We're happy you're here. And so on the way, they're getting the blessing sung into them. Now, why it doesn't include his face shine upon you and may he lift up his countenance upon you, why it doesn't include those parts is not known. However, one could guess 
after the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. You know now, because we did Haggai and um, uh, Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah, we watched them encourage the Jews to rebuild the temple in 539 to 516. Um, The temple is there but there's never any biblical evidence that the Shekinah, remember that's the weighty, substantial glory of God, no evidence that that returned to the temple. When God made the heavens and the earth, he entered it. When God had Moses make the tabernacle, he filled it. When Solomon made the tabernacle, it said that the cloud of God filled it. But when this new temple was built, crickets. And so it's possible that when the Psalms were finally compiled and these 15 were compiled, that they left that part out because like, well, we can't, we can't in all honesty say that God will lift his face upon you at the temple because God's glory is not there. I don't know. We don't know. But there's the facts for you, okay? All right. So these are pilgrim songs. There's 15 of them. Um, I want to lastly, before we get to the psalm proper, um, if you will just, if if you have the handout, great. You don't need it if you don't. But um, it says Psalms book five. I'm getting, we'll look at this later, but the Psalms have five books, actually. It's a collection of five books. That's really cool because God spoke to Israel through five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then Israel gets to speak back to God in five books in the Psalter. Also, there is reason to believe that the Psalms are an extension of God's law. It's Israel grappling with how to practice his law. You'll notice that the Psalter opens in Psalm 1, I will meditate on his law day and night, and then like a tree I will be planted and I'll blossom. There is a sense in which the Psalter is trying to walk out the law of God. But nonetheless, we have five books. Now, we will get to this one day, probably after the Psalms of Ascent. The study of what is in each of the five is extraordinary. There is a flow to the Psalter. When this, when, see, I think we sometimes think that, you know, David wrote the first Psalm and he wrote a bunch of them. And then other people did the same thing and they wrote these magnificent prayers and songs. And then they're just randomly thrown together. It's like, well, we got 150 of them. Pile them on in. And then they sealed it and said, the Psalms. And like, wow, there they are. And we often read them like that. Like they're just random. Like this one, this one. I'll go to that one, that one. That's fine. You're totally allowed to read them out of order. But when you study them, there's an, there's an apparent intentional ordering of clusters like the 15 we're going to study, the Psalms of Ascent. And not only the clusters, but where the clusters are located in the book. There's a lot of intentionality to how the Psalter is laid out. So your attention to book five, the overview is that it begins with Psalm 107, and it's an introduction. Each of the five books begin with an introduction, but then it launches right into three Davidic Psalms, and that's significant. 108, 109, 110. These three Davidic Psalms are significant because Davidic Psalms were practically absent in books three and four. Did you hear that? Bunch of David Psalms in book one. In fact, every single book in the book, 
Every single psalm in book one is of David, with the exception of three, I think, it's three, that just have no title at all. It's all David. Book two is some David, and then the sons of Korah, the sons of Asaph, and his son Solomon. It's David's administration. So you have this struggle of David, then you have like his kingdom being established in book two, but then in book three, they're mourning over the nations ruining the temple. And there's a lot of mourning psalms in book three. And David is absent from all except one psalm. Book four, David is absent for except I think two. But then in book five, David makes a comeback. Why do you think? Because the kingdom of God, which crumbled with Israel's fall, will be resurrected with the ultimate son of David. Jesus, the son of God. The Psalter's looking forward to the new David to come, and he comes. And in Psalm 110, you have one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus quotes that about himself. Then, we're getting closer to our psalms, okay? Psalm 111, look what it says in, um, it actually doesn't say this in the title, but Psalm 111 through 117, 111 through 117, they're called the Hallel Psalms or Egypt Psalms. These were psalms that were sung during Passover in celebration of God's liberating Israel from Egypt, okay? It's 111 through 117, Hallel Psalms, Egypt Psalms. There's a, they're called Hallel because there's a lot of hallelujahs in these psalms. Then, so okay, go with the story now, okay? So you have these psalms in which you're celebrating your release from Egypt. Then Psalm 118 is called a messianic psalm in which it's looking forward to their future king who will have this universal kingdom. By the way, it's the psalm Jesus quotes when he's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. Um, Not Jesus, I'm sorry, the crowds quote about Jesus when he's walking in on the donkey. Hosanna in the highest. This is the day the Lord has made. That's Psalm 118. Then you have Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's all about the Torah or the law, the word of God. 22 sections of eight verses, because they're of alphabets, 22 word letters. Each of those eight verse sections starts every line with the same letter. So we'll just use English as, as an example. Verses 1 through 8 all start with A. Verses oh, 9, I'm not good at math. 9 through 16 all start with B. Verses 17 to you know what, all begin with C. Through the whole Psalter, right? That's beautiful. Okay, so 111. We're singing hallelujah that we're led out of Egypt. And it takes us through the Messiah, to Mount Sinai, where God delivers his law. It's a psalm of celebrating the law. You see the story here? Release from bondage. They come to the mount where they get the law. And then what's the next psalm after 119? It's 120, where you start the psalms of ascent. You see what happens? God liberates us from our bondage. He gives us the Messiah. He gives us his word, his instruction to guide us on the path. And then he shows us the mountain where home is and says, I've given you Messiah. I've given you my word. I've given you salvation. Let's climb. 
And so we begin our climb. So there is just a little, little sliver of how the Psalter has this intentional structure built into it. And I wanted to take the time to show you that because I would hate to just jump into Psalm 120 without us appreciating what we're jumping into. So, if you guys will now, we're now in Psalm 120 proper. Probably one of the longest introductions I've ever done, but it's a short chapter. So someone said, how are you going to fill an hour with this? I think I just answered that for you. One twenty, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Yahweh, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? So he's in the midst of liars, right? And now he's saying, ah, you, what's going to be done with you, deceiver? Here's the answer, verse 4. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Um, broom tree, broom wood was known for burning, its embers were burning long and hot. So arrows and heat upon them. In verse 5. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Okay. The way I set this up for you was, we're going to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival. God asked us to come up there for Passover in the spring, for first fruits 50 days after that, and for tabernacles or booths later on in the autumn. These are joyous moments. Let's go. And then you open the first psalm with everything I gave you in mind, and you're like, ew, yuck. God, help me. There's liars all around me. Punish them, Lord, with heat and arrows. And woe is me. That sounds really happy, doesn't it? They hate peace. I'm for peace, therefore war. You're like, who, who wants to be on this road? Who wants to be singing with them? They're the minor key caravan, but we've got hip-hop over here, so come join us. That's, it doesn't sound good, does it? Now, what's interesting is that this is the only downer psalm of all, of all 15. The others are uppity and joyous. Why is the first one such a downer? Read again with me, will you? Like, how many odd things are in this psalm? Every single verse has hardship in it. Verse 1, in my distress. We start off on a bad note. Verse 2, lying lips, deceitful tongue. Bad neighbors. Verse 3, uh, there's this threat. What shall be done to you, deceitful tongue? So, the threat. The deceitful is mentioned again. Verse 4, a warrior's sharp arrows. And we got violence. We got a warrior. We got a soldier. We got weapons involved. Does this sound like a world you're familiar with yet? Verse 5, 
Yay, going to Jerusalem. Nope. Woe to me. We're familiar with the word woe now, aren't we? We've, we've done Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. How many times have you heard that woe in the prophets? A lot. And never was it, whoa, this is awesome. It was always, whoa, your destruction. Let me tell you. Woe is me. He's not in a good place. Verse 6, at the end, those who hate peace. So they're peace haters. And then in verse 7, it finally gets good. It's like, I'm for peace. And then it ends with, but they're for war. Every single verse, I highlight negative things in red in my Bible, and I notice every verse has red. That feels like this world, doesn't it? It seems like every verse that we must sing or every road that we must take is full of red caution signs. And we don't feel like we're home. We don't feel like we have rest. And that's the point of the first psalm, is to call attention to the fact that we need this pilgrimage. We need this climb up the mountain. It's calling our attention to the world around us for what it is, not what we've tried to make it. Now, because of all of these problems, we're really good at building solutions into our world and saying, yep, fix that, we're good. Because humanity has a problem with God. We have a problem with finding our solutions in God. But this psalm wants to say, no more. The world is a mess. Let's be straightforward and honest about the mess it is. So it calls it out. But also, all the lies. Look at all the lies. Lying lips, deceitful tongue, deceitful tongue. So three references to lying lips. Those are the first three verses. Then in verses 6 and 7, we have hostile tongues. We have haters of peace. We have people who are for war. This poor guy is so influenced by everything around him that he sees himself worthy of woe. The world is full of lies, friends. Of course, if you're here on a Sunday night, chances are you already know that. You already know the world's full of lies. It's good to be reminded that when the ascent does look daunting and when it looks better to have that Diet Coke, oh, come on, it looks better to have the real deal. No Diet Coke. (laughs) On the side of the road, kicking it. It's good to remember that the world is built on a blueprint of lies. It promises rest for your restless heart. And it says, look, look, the career. If you go to school and work really hard and make sure you graduate, you can have the certain reputation that will be hired for certain kinds of jobs that will pay you certain kinds of salaries so that you can have certain kind of lifestyle so that your restless heart will finally rest in your accomplishments and your cushy, cozy lifestyle. You don't want your kids to go to that school, do you? No. So you got to move to that neighborhood, which means you need that income. It's very simple. The world promises that. You work really hard at it. And then if you're um, some people who 
graduated right around the recession, you found out that that was a big lie. It was a huge lie. Or people who did make it to the top, and then they found out once they were up there, this is all a lie. I'm still restless. I'm still on the road, even though I've worked hard to be not on the road. There are other lies. That's money. What about the lies of sex? What about the lie that your spouse is no longer who they're supposed to be? At least your definition of who they're supposed to be. So find a new one. Or how about this one? This is more common to the students I teach during the week. (laughs) How about not marriage? (laughs) How about finding that fulfillment now, beforehand? It's a great lie. And it's hard to say, yeah, it might be fun, but it's going to leave you empty. It's hard to call that a lie when everything around them says, no, 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 it's good, it's awesome, self self-realization on top of gratification. Find your true self. Experiment. How do we understand that these are lies? The psalm wants to just tell you right away. Look, for all who have felt the lies of the world, come, you're ready. You're ready. And unfortunately, we have Adam and Eve's DNA, if you will. We like to find out on our own that everything's a lie. Remember the lie to them? The serpent said, oh, no, no, no. You're not going to die if you touch the fruit. Come on. See? You get to see Satan leaning up against it. I feel really good. There's some good vibes from this bark right here. Um, Then, of course, oh, no, no, no. You will not die. Your eyes will be opened. It's the total opposite. And they eat it, but then they find out that he was so deceitful. Everything he said was right. They didn't physically die. Their eyes were opened. But none of it was better than what they had. It was worse than what they had. First um, John chapter 2, I think it's 16 and 17, it talks about the lies of this world. It talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride and possessions, or in other words, the accomplishment of your ambition. Um, It talks about those things. The world is lying to us. It's trying to appeal to you through your feelings, through through all your senses, basically. That's the world we live in. And until we recognize that the world we live in is lies, until we recognize that the world around us is simply violence trying to get what it wants, we will never be ready to hike the mountain. We will never be ready to ascend to the New Jerusalem. So Psalm 120 says, wake up to your distress. Wake up to the lies around you. Notice the violence in the hearts of people on every corner. Notice how every time you're looking for something that's actually sane, something that looks like the way maybe God would want the world, they're like, no, you don't. We hate what you're saying. We love our way. Notice that around you. And if you've noticed it, then come, come, find rest for your restless heart. Join me, the psalmist is saying. Join me as we travel to our true home, to our true rest. Amen? I hope you're with me and that you want to go the way, the whole way. Also, one more thing to point out about the distress of this psalm, the, the difficulty of it, is it's also warning you and I that the first steps of the road are always the hardest. The ascent is steepest when you begin. 
but it gradually gets easier as you make the top. It's always hardest at the bottom, but it gets easier at the top, at least in the spiritual life. But if you think about it, it's true too, how if you begin any kind of physical effort, let's say you want to start exercising, or you just want to start being a hiker. Whatever. I know we have a couple hikers in here. It's not easy the first few times, especially if you just don't have good shoes and you get blisters or you got sore muscles the next day when you wake up. Like, why did I do that? I can't even get out of my bed or I got insect bites or sunburn or whatever. Ron had terrible BO while we climbed. Like, you know, there's so many things to complain about. There's multiple Rons. Don't duck your head. Um, like, it's always hardest, but the more you do it, isn't it easier as you do it? Think of all the things you've done in life. When things get easier by habit, by doing, by routine, by choosing over and over. So yes, don't lose heart, brothers and sisters. If you said, I've tried the God thing, I've tried the ascent, but it was woe to me. I'm asking you to keep at it for 14 more steps and then prove me wrong. Don't let the lies get you only five feet up the hill. Keep pressing on. The psalm is not trying to lie to you. It's telling you, it's going to be hard at first. You're going to say, I thought I was going for peace, but everything about this is the opposite. I'm in distress. Help me, God. What did I get myself into? So find a caravan, <clears throat> aka a church, <laughs> and join together and help each other through the first difficult phases of your ascent. So the beginning's the steepest, but it will level off as you get to Jerusalem. That is the wonderful news. All right. Um, a couple, I just wanted to point out though how terrible the psalmist feels in verse 5 when he says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and dwell among the tents of Kedar. Um, it took me a while to like get to the bottom of this because nobody seemed to be very clear about it. But Meshech and Kedar, like actually, I, so what I did is I went to my Bible atlases and started looking for Meshech and Kedar, and I was getting so confused because one dictionary said, well, Kedar is like a tribe in Meshech. And so I'm like, I'm not finding that. And then I'm looking on a map. I can't find Meshech, but I can find Kedar, or it's the other way around. And it just didn't seem like very prominent. And I'm looking at the glossary. It's like, oh, oh, they mentioned it, but this is a person, Kedar, not the place, Kedar. That was a waste of time. Finally, I don't remember who wrote it, but someone simply said, Meshech and Kedar are far-flung places. One's way in the north and the other's way in the south. The point is, it doesn't matter where Kameshek and Kedar are. The point is, is that they are in uh, Timbuktu and Siberia, basically. They're places you don't want to be. They're places that are way off the map of where you're trying to be. So this psalmist is saying, I am in the wrong places. I am far from home. That's the idea. We have these restless hearts and we feel far from home. So we yearn with the psalmist to get going. So here's the lesson the first psalm has for us. It's that if we're going to climb with the psalms of ascent, the first step, the very first step we take is God. It's not a trick. It's not a life hack. It's God. It is so fundamental. It is so simple. 
but it cannot be done without God. Psalm 120 is telling you and I to say yes to God and no to the world. Your journey begins the moment you renounce the world and say yes to God. Once you do that, you are on the ascent right there. Yes to God and no to the world is the ascent. The problem is, is that most of us are kind of at the trailhead, but never get on it because we're like, I'm in the world of the world, but I have a Jesus add-on for only 50 more cents. We live in Meshech. We live in Kedar, but we have a Bible. We live in Meshech, but we go to church. We live in Kedar, but I pray every now and then when I'm in distress. That isn't what the psalmist is asking for. He's asking for us to, yes, say yes to God, but yes to God has to mean no to the world. As James chapter 4 says, actually he talks about violence and war. Why do you fight? Why do you quarrel? Why do you kill each other? Because you want and you do not have. And then he says a few verses later, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot say yes to both. The ascent is recognizing the lie around you and saying yes to God. You have to turn your back and you have to go up. There's no up and down. You go up. It's renunciation. I, I realize how hard of a word this can be because Americans aren't used to the word renunciation. We have rights and we are so prosperous. We sometimes get entitled, don't we? We complain when we don't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> renunciation is not a habit for us. Renunciation, how dare you tell me to give that up? Or how dare you tell me that it ought not to be the way I'm doing it? But renunciation is the first step in saying yes to God. You know what it's called in the Bible? It's called repent. Repent. John the Baptist shows up and says, repent, for the one is coming. What is he saying? He says, say no to your ways and say yes to the way to come. Then Jesus shows up right after John and says the same message. In Mark, he says, repent, for the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is at, or the kingdom of God is at hand. What's he saying when he says repent? He says, say no to every other religious leaders method for finding rest for your soul say yes to me i'm taking you to the new jerusalem and then peter when the church is born on the day of pentecost and the holy spirit fills the believers and everybody at the temple there is saying what in the world is going on how are they all drunk at 9 a.m in the morning and peter says that's not the case the holy spirit is filled us because we've said yes to god so then they ask him well what must we do and what does he say he says repent and be baptized we see it all the significant trailheads of the bible the leader the mentor the guide has told us renunciate the world renunciate renounce the world <laughs> let's enunciate that properly i don't know 
Renounce the world and say yes to God's path. It's no to the road you've been on. It's yes to the road of ascent. That is what renunciation means. We're right now in that six-week period leading up to Easter. Um, Catholics call it Lent. Other very traditional Protestant churches call it Lent. I know Calvary Chapel doesn't like the word because it reeks of Catholicism. I'm sorry if that's you. I'm not pushing this on you, but I personally love this season. I love it, well, probably because it's voluntary for me and some priest isn't telling me I have to do it. Maybe that's it. But I remember my very first experience with Lent. Well, one of my first, like, on-the-ground experiences. Rather than hearing about it from my grandma, one of my first, like, real-life experiences was... um, where I was working in a place where I remember my tour, the day I was interviewed and hired, they took me on a tour to the office, and they're like, so here's so-and-so, so-and-so, and like, hi, 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 and then there's an empty desk, and like, that person is doing time right now. She'll be back in a couple weeks. It's like, cool, this is the kind of place we're at. Um, so it was, ser- it was very godless. I remember the first time the person I was working with started talking to me, He's like, oh yeah, I'm in a lawsuit right now because I punched a guy, uh, I punched out a guy in a bar. I was like, what? What did you do? Like, I threw a stool on his head. It's like, this is, this is a great crowd. I'm setting this up because this next part blew my mind. I'm thinking this way about everyone I'm working with. Um, and then all of a sudden, Lent comes around. And oh my goodness, it was like, who turned on the Christian switch in here? All of a sudden, everybody cared about doing something for God. And it was like giving up Coke, or there were little things, but, but they were serious about it, and they wouldn't eat their red meat on Friday. I was like, what got into these people? That was my first experience with Lent. It was like, oh, it's that thing you have to do to get right with God. That's not why I appreciate it today. I appreciate it because for me, this is a season where I get to practice something I don't make myself ever do renunciation. <laughs> I, don't get, I, need to say, uh, I don't get to renounce anything in my life. And it's a season where I, I get to. And I, I love this because not only is it spring and it starts to get warmer and you're like, ah, uh, I don't know, it just kind of goes hand in hand, I guess. But, um, but I feel closer to God as we get closer to Easter. I think because I'm practicing renunciation. And it might look like different things for us. If you've already renounced the world and you're on your ascent, great. But let's make sure that we guard ourselves against the lies and the pit stops that tell you, just play at Chuck E. Cheese for a while. Let's, so it might be a literal food fast. It's renouncing something, renouncing something so that you can remember that God is the only truth you need. Um, I know one student who was sharing with me that last or one year, she practiced Lent and decided to give up her phone on Lent. Pretty courageous for a teenager. And her phone broke on Ash Wednesday and then worked again right after Easter. And she saw that that was God's favor upon her decision. 
It doesn't matter what it is. I see Lent as a chance to practice renunciation. And so that will be different things for each of us. So, repentance, renunciation, no to God, oh, excuse me, no to the world, <laughs> no to the world, yes to God is our first step. We're going to go to communion in just a minute, and I want to make crystal clear at this point that the ascension is not about us being resilient. It's not about us being stronger than everybody else. It's not about I have to pour more of my effort into this. It's very important we don't get into this I am doing it mentality. The ascension is in and through Jesus who ascended before us. Understand. Ephesians 2 tells us what we already know from Luke and Acts that Jesus ascended after his resurrection. He is at our home before us. Ephesians 2 says that in Christ, he has raised us up. Now, that is initially referring to your resurrection. You're alive. But then it says, and raised us up to sit with him. That's the ascension. We are being placed at the right hand of God in Christ. This is our ascension. This is not about me earning that, me proving myself worthy of that by being the best climber here. It's about my experiencing home, experiencing my rest in him, experiencing this, this position he's given to me through my hike up the mountain. That is when the Psalms turn from woe to me, for I live in Meshech and Kedar, and go to, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let's pray. And so, Lord...